Turn with me then to our sermon text. If you have your Bibles with you, we'll go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. In context, the flood has just happened. Noah got off the ark. We saw two weeks ago when I preached last in chapter 8. First thing he did was to offer a sacrifice, a burnt offering. And God determines in his heart to never again send such a flood to wipe out every living thing upon the earth, to maintain an order upon the earth. Now in chapter 9, he says that. Uh, He is going to address then uh, Noah and his sons and speak to them. So let me read Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the covenant, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon the word. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the compassion that you show in your promises and in your grace in the mercy that you show in what is described in this text. We pray that you would 
in your compassion. Give us understanding to teach us your word, to instruct us the way in which we ought to go, to instruct us in your loving character. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, we get uh, instruction on what life is to be like after the flood. Uh, Just as God had spoken to Adam and Eve at key points in earth history, at the creation, and then after the fall, what is life to be like after the fall? He speaks to them again. Now God speaks to Noah and his sons. Now, again in a new situation, God gives his people direction. God, in this passage, he speaks first a word of blessing and commission, and then he speaks a word of covenant promise and sign. Uh, It's twice that it says, and God said to Noah and his sons with him. Uh, Two different uh, words that he has to say. A word of blessing and direction, and then a word of covenant promise and sign. And the context is that of salvation and sacrifice. God has saved this remnant from the earth. Uh, Noah and his household and a remnant of every creature that lives on the earth, uh, every animal, and he uh, has, uh, as it were, been moved to say these things. He, He says them in response to this pleasing aroma that ascended from Noah's burnt offering. In other words, it is founded upon atonement and sacrifice and prayer. Not that God was impressed with the smell of dead beasts, but what it symbolized, uh, the sacrifice of Christ and the worship of Noah through Christ by faith. And so God's wrath upon the earth is assuaged, is come to an end, come to a limit, and he uh, speaks then a word of blessing. He speaks to his redeemed people in response to Noah's sacrificial worship. Although his words contain instruction and benefits that do apply to unbelievers as well, it is fundamentally a covenant of grace. God blesses his people as he had blessed Adam and Eve, but not on the basis of their righteousness or works, but on the basis of grace. First, let's look at God's blessing and mandate. What did he tell them to do? God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, and the first thing he said to them is a renewal of what we call the creation mandate, uh, what God had told Adam and Eve at the beginning, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in, in different words, he says essentially the same thing, to have dominion over the creatures, into Your hands, they are delivered. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, of course, these are uh, married men that are told to multiply. Marriage is implied here as an ordinance, an institution that God created, and in part for this purpose. This is a significant purpose of marriage, to multiply, to raise up offspring, And this is repeated with emphasis. Not only is it said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which is kind of like three ways to say the same thing, but then in verse 7, 
It says again, and you, or you all, it's plural, and you be fruitful and multiply. All right, I think we got it. Increase greatly on the earth. Okay, and multiply in it. All right, I think I got the point. We're supposed to multiply and increase and and be fruitful and multiply and increase in in, in the earth, all over the earth. This is uh, uh, the task then for Noah and his sons and, and their offspring, even our task today. God desires that mankind, especially redeemed humanity, have lots of babies and raise them up to maturity, that they might fill the earth and govern it. As Jeremiah would write to the exiles, take wives and have sons and daughters. And actually, he doesn't just stop there. He says, and, and, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. So in other words, raise your children and all the way up to maturity so that they continue the process, that they get married and they have children. Raise up children who will be uh, mature parents and grandparents. This is both a blessing and a commission from God. That he is the one that gives power to have children. And he, this is also a commission that he has given, a responsibility. Even though God may withhold this blessing from some or equip some people for a single life of special service, yet this is generally the commission given to us as a whole. Now there is, I think I've already mentioned before, not that I am encouraging you to watch it, but there is a modern Noah movie out there. And it does change the story a bit in some interesting ways. Uh, It changes the story so that the big question, the real tension of the movie, is whether man should wipe himself off the earth once the flood is over, or whether he should continue to increase and multiply. Uh, In the movie, Noah starts thinking, maybe I should just make sure none of my children have kids. Our goal is just to get the animals to the other side of the flood, and then we need to die off because we're the problem. You know, we fell, we rebelled against God. We don't deserve to live on the earth. Now, fortunately, the movie ends with this verse, uh, chapter chapter 9, verse 1, an affirmation of mankind's place on the earth. But it is um, perhaps a fitting tension in the modern world. Secular humanity has doubts about whether his presence on the earth is a good thing. Many see this fruitfulness, this multiplying, as quite irresponsible. It is, in fact, there's a very small minority, but there's a minority who are committed to extinction. Uh, It is true that the presence of human sin and cruelty is not a good thing. After all, that is why God sent the flood in the first place. They had filled the earth with violence. But the presence of mankind itself is a good thing on the earth. And God's solution, uh, which he determines at this point, which he reveals, I should say at this point, is to restrain mankind and gradually to save mankind as it multiplies and not to cut it off from the earth. And that should be your goal as well. It is sin, not man himself, that is the problem. And so there is the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth then also work and dominion is included in verse 2. That all these animals of different kinds are delivered into your hands. It's another way of saying that you have God-given dominion over them. They are your responsibility. You are the ruler of them. And God says that they shall fear you. And perhaps this is a modification 
of what was originally in the garden. Perhaps they had a more voluntary submission to Adam. And now in this day, it is uh, perhaps a little harsher, but nevertheless, they shall fear you. They shall be uh, those that you may tame or that you will have dominion over. They are in your hands to use them, to care for them, remembering that God is a good model for his care of his creation, making it both useful and providing good things for it. And that leads us to verse 3. There's a new use that God gives of the animals, that he now provides meat as food. It says in verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I say, Give, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. One use that is now permitted is to use the animals as food. Originally, God gave man food from the plants and the trees. Did not require death. Uh, there was plenty of variety there. Food made from plants is not merely the, the, the side dish, the garnish, but it's food in its own right. The original basic food given to man. But at this point, God gives every moving thing that lives as food for man, as he gave him the green plants. Now notice a few things here. Even though a distinction of clean and unclean animals was already made for the sake of sacrifices, only clean animals were sacrificed, yet no distinction is made regarding food, regarding clean and unclean. Every moving thing is really broad. Everything is really broad. Uh, Noah was allowed to eat both clean and unclean animals. The term is being used being very purposefully broad. The ceremonial laws that restricted Israel to only eat clean animals was a symbolic ordinance pertaining to Israel uh, that was enforced until the coming of Christ at a particular purpose uh, and no longer applies in this international new covenant administration. In the New Testament, regarding clean and unclean animals, we return to the instructions given to us to Noah that the animals are given. Now, they might not all be equally desirable for food, but they are all uh, permitted. Now, this does not mean that you have a duty to eat meat or a certain amount that you need to get. Uh, meat shall be food, but that doesn't mean that you must eat meat or a certain amount of meat, uh, but it is wrong to require abstinence from meat. Uh, Paul rebuked false teachers who, quote, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer is made holy by the word of God and prayer. God has spoken. He's given his word. He's consecrated both plants and animals for man's use as food. And this word and our thanksgiving make it holy. Its use is approved by God. When he appointed it for us, and when we receive it with a good conscience, we eat with faith. Faith that this is given to us by our God. It's perhaps not surprising that someone who denies God might feel guilty killing the animals and eating them. You know, who are we to, to trespass on this, uh, on this earth and to take its good things for us? Some false religions 
uh, will religiously uh, restrict men uh, out of a, a guilty conscience. But it is because we know that God is the creator, and he has given this for our use, for our good, that we might receive it with thanksgiving as a gift and enjoy it with a good conscience. Your duty is to give thanks to God for his provision of food, to not despise his gifts, and to use them wisely and properly, as befits the situation that each person is in, and to judge what is best. But while God does not prohibit the eating of unclean animals, he does prohibit the eating of blood in this text. Um, To not eat it with its life, that is, its blood. This prohibition is repeated in the decree from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, to abstain from blood. And that prohibition was observed by the early church. It was affirmed by men like Tertullian and Chrysostom and the 5th-6th Council in 692. But its observance gradually declined, especially in the West. Augustine the Council of Florence in the 1400s, and the Reformers argued that the command was given to Christians only. Sorry, it was given to Christians only to keep peace between Jew and Gentile at the time, uh, not to offend weak consciences, and so it was a situational rather than an absolute prohibition. Personally, I'm not convinced that's the case. I personally think it's still an abiding command like the rest of these instructions here in Genesis 9, but I realize that's a minority position and and, uh, recognize that. But regardless of whether the prohibition is still in force, let me emphasize what it teaches. For what it teaches, regardless of whether you think the prohibition still uh, is binding or not, what it teaches definitely does. That life is to be respected. That it would teach Noah and his sons that even as they were to now... They were given the animals to eat, to kill, that they would still respect that as something given to them by God, that they still ought to respect the life of the animal even as they take it. And if they were to respect animal life, how much more were they to respect human life? Even while killing and eating animals, this prohibition taught man to respect the life of the animal's Given by God, man was not to give way to bloodlust and to cruelty. And how much more, therefore, human life should be respected. And that leads us right into verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. And so, similarly, when we find texts like Deuteronomy 25.4, You shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. God's law teaches us to, be, uh, to care for our animals. If he's doing the work, that you should make sure he gets to, uh, to share in the profit of his labor, that, that you care for your ox while he's treading out the grain. And then, of course, that's used in the New Testament, that that should teach us how much more the human laborer deserves his wages. The way we treat animals reflects on the way we treat one another, the way we treat our fellow man, as an argument from the lesser the greater. Likewise, Proverbs 12.10, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Again, the, the, 
the, uh, the cruelty or the uh, respect that we have for life can exemplify itself in the way we treat our animals. And so therefore, how much more the way we treat humans. If you'll bear with me for a second, I want to share a little illustration from the early church, how this logic, this reasoning worked out. Tertullian was an early church father who lived in North Africa in around 200 AD. He wrote a book, The Apology. He was one of the apologists defending the faith, and he defended it against the criticisms of his day. Some of the criticisms were quite nasty, quite horrendous. One of them was that that Christians were said to eat little children. Where would they get that idea? Well, Christians often rescued abandoned children, and then they spoke about eating flesh and blood in the Lord's Supper. So the unbeliever who might only overhear part of the conversation came up with this crazy story. As Tertullian says, monsters of wickedness, we are accused of observing a holy rite in which we kill a little child and then eat it. Well, first Tertullian attacks the claim as a rumor without any confirmation. And then he appeals to natural feelings and will, which would not allow it. And then in chapter 9 of this book, he points to the pagans themselves, where they practice the same or worse things, and describes a bunch of horrible pagan practices. But finally, he points to the actual practices of the Christians, which of course are as far from that accusation as possible. He says, blush for your vile ways before the Christians, who have not even the blood of animals at their meals of simple and natural food, who abstain from things strangled and that die a natural death, for no other reason that they, than that they may not contract pollution. To clench the matter with a single example, you tempt Christians with sausages of blood just because you are perfectly aware that the thing by which you try to get them to transgress, they hold unlawful. And how unreasonable is it to believe that those of whom you are convinced that they regard with horror the idea of tasting the blood of oxen are eager after the blood of men, unless, mayhap, you have tried it and found it sweeter to the taste. As uh, Christians, we are pro-life. We, uh, as Tertullians say, we don't even eat animal blood. Um, The point there is that we have respect for life, even animal life. How much more human life. He goes on to say, in our case, murder being once for all forbidden, we may not destroy even the fetus in the womb, while as yet the human being derives blood from other parts of the body for its sustenance. To hinder a birth is merely a speedier man-killing. Nor does it matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to the birth. That is a man which is going to be one. You have the fruit already in its seed. So another argument from lesser to the greater, we don't even kill the unborn child. How much less would we think of killing a born one? And so this is the, the, the ethic, the, the way of thinking for the Christian, uh, that life is given by God, that it is to be respected and honored. Uh, even animal life has a certain value, even though we have the right to, to take that life for a proper and responsible use to not be cruel or violent, um, and then how much more for humans to respect and therefore to preserve life, to protect life, to help one another, to share things with one another, to work hard that we might have, uh, take care of our own needs and have something to share with those in need, uh, to protect those who are in danger. Uh, how much more should we help one another, therefore? And that gets us to the next point, the ordinance of the sword, the administration 
of justice. As Gerhardus Voss put it, God in this passage speaks of the propagation of life, the sustenance of life, and the protection of life. One of man's major problems before the flood was violence. The world is filled with violence, people following Cain and Lamech and their ways of violence and murder. The blood of man cried out for judgment. And so God here ordains the fundamental duty of civil government, the death penalty for murder. That he requires a reckoning. And whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. The passage teaches that man ought to execute the murderer, shedding the blood of the man who has shed the blood of man. And he ought to do this because God requires a reckoning from man. The execution is not only done as a deterrent, not only to teach other people to not murder, although it does certainly deter the murderer from murdering again. Uh, But that is not the main point that's described here. It is done as an act of justice to carry out God's wrath upon the wrongdoer, as Romans 13 says too. God holds a people accountable for the innocent blood that is shed in its midst. He requires a reckoning. And the murderer deserves such a punishment because God made man in his own image. This gets at why, why man's life is more precious than the animal's. Why man's life is particularly to be respected and protected. God made man in his own image. He made man as his vice regent, his representative, his emblem. Even with the disfiguring effects of sin, man remains what he was created to be, the image of God. To murder a human is to attack God. God therefore commissions man to vindicate his image by avenging innocent blood. Now God doesn't here appoint a form of civil government, a democracy, a monarchy, a republic, a democracy, but he does appoint here a task for civil government. And as the law of Moses makes clear, God holds the community responsible to punish murder. It's not something for an individual to take upon himself. It is a public matter. And as such, it must be done by those with public authority. And it must be done with due process, only on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You don't want to uh, commit murder in the... uh, You don't want to, in trying to punish murder, commit more murder, right? And so there are safeguards and limits and uh, ways to do this that seek to do justice and not make the injustice worse. So by public authority with due process, the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul teaches in Romans that as individuals, and especially as saints, you must not avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. But then he also teaches that the governing authorities have been instituted by God as his servants for your good to carry out that wrath of God that you're supposed to leave it to. The magistrate does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So God appoints this for your good, to restrain evil in society, to administer justice. Even though God would show patience with mankind, not sending another flood upon them despite their sin, yet he would set bounds to man's wickedness 
to ensure a degree of stability by a limited administration of justice in the hands of men, by limited local judgments upon men and nations, both the restraint of total judgment and the execution of limited judgment serves his purpose of maintaining life on earth, giving time and room for God to work out his redemptive purposes to save mankind, to save a people that will bring blessing, not curse, to the earth. Now we have our second part here, which I might not spend quite as much time on because I talked about it some last sermon as well. That is God's covenant and its sign. Here God reveals it by words to Noah and his sons that he has a covenant promise, a promise sealed by covenant, an oath-bound promise, a covenant that binds him to the performance thereof, his covenant to never again destroy the earth and to cut off all flesh by a flood. God established his covenant with all the passengers of the ark, human and animal, and the emphasis, I think, is especially on the animals, Uh, but he makes it with all living creatures for all future generations. And it is that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Here God says what he had said in his heart in chapter 8. He would maintain the earth, its order, its history, its life, the day and night, the seasons and their fruitfulness, not sending another worldwide judgment to wipe out every living thing. Now, this covenant does not set up a common kingdom or sphere for human culture that's uh, not impacted by redemption. Why do I say that? That's kind of a, a, a niche thing. A certain minority of Reformed scholars have that idea. I call it two-kingdom theology and place that, that the Noahic covenant here sets up a kind of separate sphere for culture that's not impacted by redemption, but I don't find that in the text. But it does, though, this covenant does provide blessings which both believers and unbelievers receive, although they they receive them very differently. The animals also receive these blessings, being preserved by his design and his ongoing providence. God intends for both man and beast to inhabit this earth, and he provides them with a home. And he gives a sign. Just as God would later seal other covenants with signs, like circumcision and the Passover, and today, baptism and the Lord's Supper, so he gives a sign for this promise, the rainbow. The word there is literally the bow, like a bow and arrow. But of course, when you look up in the sky and you see a rainbow, it looks like a bow, a very colorful bow, kind of bent in that kind of semicircle look. Some say perhaps this is God setting his bow there, so he's not using his weapons against mankind, or some say that the bow is pointing at God, so if he proves false to his promise, it'll shoot him. It's a little speculation there what exactly the bow is supposed to mean. But the main thing is, he's going to put that there so that we know that God will remember his promise. There's a natural explanation for why rainbows exist with the water and the colors they produce, but those natural forces and laws are also made by God. Perhaps there were rainbows before the flood, but it's at this point that he makes it a sign of the covenant. He assigns it its meaning as a sign of his promise. When you see a rainbow, therefore, remember God's promise, that he remembers his promise, that he sees the rainbow, he will keep it. 
gratefully receive the time that he gives. Don't take it for granted. The time you have right now on earth. The blessings of the earth. Use that time and blessings for his glory. Do not spurn his gift. Use it to turn from sin unto Christ. Use the time and patience for salvation. Use it to practice God's ways of righteousness more and more. Enjoying his gifts with one another and giving thanks to him for them. Now, later on in biblical history, God would use the Noahic covenant to illustrate his salvation of Israel after the exile, which, of course, is also a symbol of the salvation that we enjoy in Christ. In Isaiah 54, 9 through 10, it says, This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And so that same grace and steadfast love is shown to you through Jesus Christ for everlasting life. Jesus Christ has satisfied divine justice, brought us peace. As the floods will not overwhelm the earth, so his wrath will not overwhelm you. The flood of his judgment shall not overwhelm those who are in Christ Jesus. His anger is turned away. His steadfast love is guaranteed by his covenant of peace. And so as you think upon the rainbow and the Noahic covenant, think upon his mercy and his faithfulness. As he faithfully preserves the earth, so in Christ he will faithfully preserve you forever. So, altogether, God has promised to maintain life on this earth, to never again send a flood to destroy the earth and all the life on it. He has given the rainbow as a sign of his faithfulness and mercy. So, gratefully use the time that you have been given for his glory, and in accordance with the instructions that he has given us for this age, to serve our Lord in Christ in our earthly callings, to love your spouse, to raise up your children to work to provide food, to care for the earth and its animals, to maintain justice in society, to look out for your fellow man who is made in the image of God. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for leading and directing us. We thank you for the mercy that you show to give us an opportunity to receive salvation and to work that salvation in us by your Spirit. We pray that you would use this time to indeed save the nations, to give your gospel fruit in the hearts of men through faith. We pray, Father, that you would indeed establish justice in our society, that you would grant us greater care for one another, and that you would direct our civil government, uh, to accomplish its God-given task as your servant. We pray that you would continue to care for us and feed us, to provide us for the food that is needful for us. We pray, Father, that you would also uh, give blessing to your people by giving them abundant offspring and bringing up that offspring in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that they might walk in your ways and raise up yet another generation and tell to them 
your mighty deeds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.